The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2016, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Gaetan Dugas, and it might be Dugas, but I'm going to say Dugas, and you got to go with me here. He's the Canadian airline pilot known as Patient Zero, and he was blamed for the spread of HIV in North America. He has been what The Guardian calls, this is their word, exonerated. Now, I never thought of this airline steward as someone to blame, someone in need of exoneration. He didn't know what HIV was. He was just living his life. But just in terms of setting public perception straight, the journal Science reports that scientists managed to reconstruct the route by which HIV AIDS arrived in the U.S., and it doesn't all trace back to Gaetan Dugas. He was just another unfortunate victim who had no way of knowing that he had this affliction. But even without these new findings, Gaetan Dugas should not have been called patient zero at all. And I'm not saying that's because of medical accuracy. I'm saying it's because of typographical accuracy. This was a revelation to me, at least. Dugas should never have been patient zero. He was never patient zero. He was patient O, as in the letter of the alphabet O, because he lived outside California. They were coding for location, and O meant outside the state where HIV was being recorded. This leads me to observe that our alphabet sucks. It makes little sense. It has so many pitfalls. Why is it W2Vs? We'll just start there. I know there's an answer. I don't want the real answer. I just want to ask the questions. Come with me, won't you? The lowercase l, same as the uppercase i. We have 26 letters, people, 52 capital and lowercase. You'd think we could eliminate redundancies. Like, there are some beautiful symbols out there that we don't even use, like the carrot, the little hat, the upside-down V. That should be a letter. It's a very logical letter. Before you're making Qs, you should make a little carrot. That should be a Q. Why not a horizontal line? Why not the O with the slash through it? A lot of languages use this. Very helpful. Won't make the zero to O mistake. We have an eight, which are two circles on top of each other. Go with three. You're not going to mistake that one. And also the backward C should be something. Now let's talk D. Uppercase D, it's a vertical line that is obese, but lowercase D, the bump moves down and goes to the other side. It doesn't make sense. Uppercase B to lowercase B, all you do is lop off the top bump. That makes sense. The D, how did the D, how did the fat D become a little D facing the other direction? I got a lot of ideas. I've tried to enact change the best way I know how. A strongly worded letter to the editor. Unfortunately, the letter was written under my new alphabet, and it has been ignored. On the show today, I spiel about Trump surrogates, young and old, attractive and ugly, misleading, and I'm going to end my sentence there. But first, a very special guest, a booking years in the making. Okay, she sits about 16 feet away from me, but it used to be four feet. Andrea Salenzi, host of YOY, is here to answer the who, what, and where's of her new old podcast. My next guest, Andrea Silenzi. How do you pronounce that? It's Silenzi. Silenzi is well known to just listeners as the girl who did the bear jingles and my producer for 15 years, was it? 
500 episodes. 500 so that episodes. felt like 15 years. It could have been if we had a normal production schedule. <laughs> so Andrea is the uh, impresarius behind the new Panoply show, though it's a it's an established show, but new to Panoply. Why, oh, why? And you describe it as a show about relationships? Yeah. That's broad. <laughs> <laughs> Would you, you like to help me rewrite that? Well, what kind of relationships? I listen. Uh, yeah, I, I like to say it's about dating, but really it's kind of me looking at how all people relate and trying to make sense of it. Right. But it's mostly about romance, sexuality, these sorts of relationships. Yeah, but I'm saying it's like relation relationships might be the Trojan horse here, where uh-huh. I'm saying that this is about, you know, dating apps and stuff, but then there's actually a deeper truth about how all humans connect. So do you have a theory of human connection or are you trying to work it out? No, I'm really confused about it. It's really hard for me. When did the show start? Like when you worked at WFMU, right? Yeah, I was and running a... did you work mu- there before the show and then you got the show or you, you uh, debuted the show while you were working in some capacity at community radio station WFMU? Yeah, I had a a job running a website for this community radio station and there's kind of an unwritten rule which is that staff members can have a radio show and eventually I got bored enough with my job that I was ready to have a radio show. Now the radio show I listened to some WFMU it's been described as dirty hippie music by Andy Breckman who was, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically it's like hey whatever you want to do it's free form radio you have a stack of records you like to play so I would say a large percentage of their shows are playing a specific genre of record. Yeah. There's a lot of dudes doing rockabilly shows, but then there's some really cutting-edge music shows. I think a lot of people know community radio stations that have come and gone, and this is one that's still surviving, that has, you know, maybe a $2 million budget every year. You know, they're a thriving, wonderful place. But were you doing the only show there that was essentially reporting? Almost, yeah, because you're forced into an hour-long time slot, so... Benjamin Walker and his show, The Theory of Everything, actually also got its start on WFMU and is now a Radiotopia show. Tom Sharpling would do a three-hour-long show called The Best Show on WFMU, and now he does it on his own as just The Best Show. Right. So there's a history of these more innovative shows trying to sustain there and not being able to. Right. So Sharpling is a great and innovative show, but it's a guy or guys or men and a woman, depending on the guest, talking into a microphone. And you would do stuff in the field. You would really do reporting for the bulk of your show before you were forced into making it like a call-in show because the gist took up all of your time. This was like a This American Life if the angle, if the reporter was always you and if the angle was something like sex and dating and relationships. That is such a nice way to describe it. Is that true? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, it, yeah. but it was looser and unedited and full right. of curse words. And it often relied on me talking to friends and family because they were so easy to book. You know, they're yeah. kind of already hanging out with you. <laughs> um, I did one episode where I was just out with some friends at a bar and just set up this microphone in the middle of the table. So you could kind of – it started to draw from my own life by default. So then you had regular guests, a stable of regulars. And they include your grandma, Phyllis, who is uh, a wonder – yeah, she yeah. just opens her mouth and magic yeah. pours out. And uh, your friend, our, I'm not going to know, f- maybe friend is too strong, but Randy, our mutual uh, acquaintance, wor- Randy. <laughs> he's the worst man in New York City, and he's going to be a regular guest on the new show. But he has horrible taste in music. He's definitely racist, sexist, just a total asshole. You got, yeah, but if you want to understand uh, dating and the scene, maybe you got to understand guys like Randy. Yeah, he's weird. So as you did the show, how did your conception of the subject change? 
So at the time I started the show, I was really painfully single. And it was a loneliness that's kind of hard to capture. I always think about that moment you come home with a big bag full of groceries and you're trying to find your keys and no one's there on the other side of the door. And you're digging into the bottom of your purse and your ice cream's melting. And you're just like, I just need a person to just open the door for me and be like, yay, you're cooking dinner. Welcome. And it was just this constant sense of loneliness. And then I went on online dating and it only became more lonely. And I needed to talk about it with someone. Well, and that became to, an outlet for the show. Maybe you needed to do online shopping. Maybe that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> this or becomes an ad for like Or get Keepa. a task rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> I realized I could never find love, but Jeeves, my butler, <laughs> opened the door for me. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah. online dating. So th- w- in, the, in the course of the show, did online dating exist when it started? Did it get a lot more popular? Well, Tinder was pretty new. Yeah. So Tinder would... Everyone kind of had these associations that it was just a hookup app, but I was looking at the technology and saying, wow, there's this amazing mutual friend algorithm. How cool that you can find that second and third degree friend, that friend of a friend who you'd eventually hopefully meet at a party. But if you're never going to meet them, you can now use the tools that are available to you to meet that person. So I was observing things about the apps that I wasn't seeing in news stories about how they affected me and my friends, the actual conversations we were having about them. Right. And now everyone's on the swipey apps. But at that moment, it was like, whoa. But it seems to me that the world of relationships or dating, everything in the world is affected by technology. And it is certainly true that people who are 25, you know, people we call millennials, never grew up in a world where computers and the internet weren't omnipresent. But for people who are dating, which can be any age from 18 to 80, but in general are people in their maybe 20s and 30s, it has come to define the world in a way that the world of dating is, or the world of daters is so different from any other older age cohort that it needs to be looked at anew. It's, it's not on a continuum of gay Talese wrote about sex in the 80s and you know Dan Savage then wrote, wrote about it and this is just the new version of examining it. It's kind of a totally new animal. Yeah. And we're dating longer than ever. You're now looking at a decade of dating where our parents, I don't know about your parents, but my parents, you know, most people were meeting in their early 20s. And now you're showing up in your early 30s like I've been doing this for a decade. Where is this person? I think I'm doing it right. But no one's been there to teach me how to do it properly. You feel this disconnect because you're trapped in an extended adolescence and you can't make sense of why this isn't working the way you were told it would. Do you think the technology is inherently confusing or is it that we're just not used to it? Do you think in 50 years when everyone's parents met on OkCupid that those kids, if there's the same version going on, won't at all be confused by it? Like the na- navigating it will be really simpler? I see. I don't blame the technology. I I don't think it's blame, but I think it's like the effect of the technology is so – it's weird because dating itself is inherently weird and it's weird because it's new and it's also maybe weird because it's weird. Like when when things first start, they haven't worked it out and so you're the guinea pig. I just feel like it's an extension of what's happening in dating kind of naturally right now, which is that we're going to have more choices than ever because we're – we're going to take more time to find that person. So if you're dating in your 30s, it's a different experience dating in your 20s. Your standards are going to be different. You're more established in your life. You know more about what you're looking for. And it makes sense that there's going to be tools that reflect that kind of dating. And also with dating apps, a real 
the new territory is networking, which is crazy to me. But a lot of these apps want to transition into a tool for just making friends in your adult life because we don't have those commons anymore that we used to have. And those commons are now taking place online. So it makes sense that we develop tools to start bridging those gaps. That seems weird to me. But is that because I'm a man in my 40s? No, I mean, it is weird. No one wants to network for their friends using a dating app. But I do think it's going to feel less weird over time in the same way online dating has started to feel less weird. But here's the other thing about dating and the dating apps. There are all these, you know, you mentioned there are all these devices. There are all these tools. Time was... Look, I I just read the book about the history of courtship and the history of dating, and things haven't always been the same. Things change over time. But it hasn't been the case that corporations or even, you know, small startups are inventing products that try to tell you to do it in one way or tell you to do it in another way. You know, dating was dating, and there was no influence by someone trying or some, you know, external force trying to shape you to do it one way or another. Whatever complications there were were just about the institution of dating, not a hundred different ways to do it. No, no. I I think there were – I think there's always been a hundred – different ways to do it. I think we just used to do it for a shorter period of time. My friend Sam, his parents met at a Jewish single sleepaway camp. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah. there, so your Jewish community used to create a singles camp. So you would go and you would meet Sam's future parent. Like, this is how we used to do it. Oh, you mean they weren't kids. They were adults. They, they were, were adults. You would go okay. in your early 20s to Jewish yeah. single sleepaway camp and you would find your husband. Yeah. I think that we used to have the Yenta who would set you up. We used to have more matchmaking in your family network. More, uh, you got to call my buddy Billy. His son Jeffrey seems like a nice guy for you. I think we used to have more natural matchmaking that happened in our communities. And now that we're kind of separate from that, and now that we're not marrying the guy we meet in our co- in college. We're not getting our MRS degrees anymore. We're starting to build our lives as adults and then look for him. It's different. Do you think that it's a lot like the paradox of choice, 14 jams in the supermarket make us more anxious? Having too many choices inevitably leads to anxiety. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but is there more? I think you should be looking through 14 jams. There is no bigger decision to make in terms of your life of happiness than this one decision. But that's the deal with the paradox of choice, that you would be just as happy with the fig jam and the grape jam. Or maybe if you really sat down and thought about it, you give the fig jam an 89 and the grape jam a 91. But here we are saying, ooh, maybe there is a strawberry jam out there. And then you wind up not having any jam. When I was a kid, all the jams tasted the same. Now that I'm 31, I have different, I'm more specific about what kind of jam I want. Well, I think that you're going to be given more choices by the people who are monetarily incentivized to give you the choices, but I don't think that that comports with happiness. I mean, I think that three things in a market, Adam Davidson talks about this, when you have three products in a market, that's really good in terms of consumer choice and in terms of not creating monopolies or duopolies. That's like an efficient market. And maybe when you have four or five, it's fantastic. But when you have 14, and this this is the book, it's called The Paradox of Choice. It's about how too many choices actually lead to greater unhappiness. And that's kind of what I'm seeing with the dating world. I mean, I think if you think that, oh, it's great to have more choices, you may be subscribed to the soulmate theory and that there's only one person out there for you. But I don't think human history indicates that that is true. I think that 
there are a number of people who you'd be really happy with if you would just think that, oh, I have to pick one of these people in front of me. Maybe not everyone, but I don't know. A lot of people are looking for that. One of the things I did for YOY is I went to the line of women who were auditioning for The Bachelor. Yeah. And a lot of them were fresh out of relationships, and they were telling me that they don't want to go on the dating apps. They want to be handed one guy by television, and they want to compete to date for him. Yeah. And this made perfect sense to them, that if they only had one guy to choose from, they could devote themselves to that guy. They could shape themselves for this guy. Having endless swiping on your app doesn't feel right. Well, I mean, this is the self-selecting crew of people who go online to get on The Bachelor. I don't think that they are similar. Well, maybe they, they are similar felt to a like lot of people. I, they didn't look like strippers or models. They no, looked no, no, like I ladies that yeah. I could hang out with on any given day. Right. But I think that that choice, like to have made that choice, I need to be given one because I've been, you know, my brain circuitry is so fried by these Tinder apps. It, I don't know. I would say that that contradicts our earlier point where we've always been given choices. At a certain point, and that point probably happened three years ago, the choices are so many that it leads to more anxiety and greater unhappiness. I'm, I mean, that's yeah. why your show exists. I'm your show sure. doesn't exist because everyone's really happy no, with the dating choices. No, something's not working. But, yeah. but as someone who, who thinks a lot about decisions she makes, I, I want to apply for a ton of jobs. I want to look for a lot of different life partners in different spaces. I want to use all the tools available to me to craft a, the life I want to live. So it makes sense to be on all the apps to me. As painful, as hard and confusing as it is, I think dating it really is a personal journey. And I feel like every date you go on, you learn more about yourself and you learn more about what you're looking for. So then and then you're stop? able then you're able to curate your choices better. Uh-huh. At, at what point? But there has you to be a stop because you get a feeling. And uh-huh. and you don't if think about everyone you've ever met in your life. Yeah. How many have you romantically loved? Yeah. It's so rare. I say like why not meet as many people as you can hoping to try to get close to that feeling. I don't think that feeling comes from having a limited supply. And so in what ways does this will this and has this show up in episodes of YOY? I don't I <laughs> I I wait till I hear something that my friends and I are talking about that no one else is talking about. And then I kind of steer my car in that direction and try to find a story there. Why, oh, why is Andrea Salenzi's, I I keep calling it the new show. Is it the new relaunched on Panoply show? It's new. It's new for most most people. It's new. It's new. Swipe right on. Why, oh, why. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. There is a lot I'm going to miss about the Trump candidacy, least of all Trump. It's his surrogates that I favor. And their incompetence, largely born of their task of having to explain their boss to America, leads me to an observation. In fiction, the ragtag group of cast-offs and never-beens and has-beens, they always band together and prove to the world that no one believed in them, but they can get the job done. But in real life, the bad news bears are actually just bad. Speaking of bad news that you can't bear, Newt Gingrich, the political equivalent of letting Kurt Schilling of 2016 pitch game one of the World Series, that Newt Gingrich was on Megyn Kelly last night to Newt-splain the error of Megyn's ways. You are fascinated with sex. You will harassment. You have a fascination with sexual harassment is what he meant. And by fascination, I think he probably implied repulsion. 
there are two types of Trump surrogates. Some of the Trump surrogates feel constrained by the candidate's nonsense. Oh, God, I got to go out there and make this better. But others feel liberated by it, right? Some are taking Trump's inflated rhetoric and trying to squeeze it down, like putting a slightly too small fitted sheet on a bed. All right, I think I got that corner. Damn, he just said his workers have Obamacare. Another corner popped up. Kellyanne Conway falls in this mode of Trump surrogate. She does the best she can. Do you believe there will be widespread voter fraud? No, I do not believe that. So absent overwhelming evidence that there is, um, it would not be for me to say that there, that there is. But then you have the surrogates, who are mostly the elected types, like Newt and Giuliani, and to a lesser extent, Chris Christie, who just have their own king sheet for the Trump queen bed. It doesn't even matter. We'll throw this thing on, my own thing. In fact, I made it at home myself. It's not even a sheet. It's a series of Afghans quilted together. They have been vetted, so we let them in this country. Trump says African-Americans should vote for him because what do they got to lose? Rudy Giuliani uses this as an opportunity to hold a symposium on, quote, black-on-black crime, to tout his record as mayor, and to answer the question if black people should be thanking him. The short answers are, it's terrible, it was great, and yes, they should. As far as the kids, Ivanka's great. She only says high-minded things that she believes in. Therefore, she's almost never in the news. Then there's Eric Trump, who has elements of both of the Trump surrogate types. Sometimes tries to clean up his father's messes. You can tell he's been his dad's right-hand man his whole life. But other times, he likes to just go out there and get all conspiratorial and wiki-leaksy. Here he was on This Week last Sunday. George, where were these women before? Where, where were It's not like my father's a hidden individual, right? I mean, he's one of the most known people in the world. Whether Several he was, have made accusations what, what, in past court filings going back many years. Whether he was building hotels, 15 seasons of Apprentice, and then the day that the Hillary WikiLeaks come out, the day that the Hillary WikiLeaks come out, you know, all of a sudden people start coming forward. I, I, I think you'd have to be really naive to think that, that one, one and the other you know, weren't, weren't coordinated together. I mean, I think somebody would really need to be naive. Yeah, on the day WikiLeaks dumped, all these people started coming forward. That is true. And, you know, that must have been tied to the WikiLeaks dump. I mean, I can't think of anything else that happened on the day the WikiLeaks files first were made public. Oh, yeah, the bus conversation. Same day. Maybe that is what prompted these women to talk about the times Trump sexually harassed them. Maybe it wasn't John Podesta's secret emails. And then there's Donald Jr. Guy talks fast. Impressively fast. I mean that. I talk fast. I respect a guy who doesn't waste my time. Here's Eric Jr. on a CNN interview with Jake Tapper in July. We're creating a system where we're encouraging criminals, essentially, to go out and pretend that they're vigilantes. I mean, it is ridiculous. We have to defend our cops. We have to take care of our people. We have to get some law and order back into this world because it doesn't exist. And if President Obama wants to go on the air and say, look at the America we live in, it's so phenomenal today versus eight years ago, I don't think I know an American that believes that to be the case. At the debate, Donald Jr. was in Spin Alley. He was on one side of a barrier, and there were foreign journalists on the other. So he could take whichever questions he wanted, and he moved from reporter to reporter. He hit his talking points two or three or four different times with each group of reporters. And the reporters were screaming, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump! And you could tell Donald Jr. loved it. That'll all go away in a couple weeks, and we will be left with what one foreign journalist asked another, as they were all desperately trying to get a comment from Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump. The journalist turned to his colleague and asked, now which one was that? (music) 
And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson. That's Wilson, double V-I, another I-S-O-N. The Gist is also produced by Chris Barube. The first B in Barube looks at that second B with affection, perhaps a bit of fatherly pride. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Oh, Lichtai. Oh, I look at the name Lichtai. You know, there's a G in there. I say it's tough. I say enough, which tells me your name should be Lichtai. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Lowercase d, capital B, W, there is a name ripe for reform. The gist, I have ideas about Hawaiian Twitter also. Cannot come close to expressing them in 140 characters. Umpru depru dupru. And before I thank you for listening, why don't you check out this? You heard my talk with Andrea Salenzi. Now listen to this excerpt of her show, Y-O-Y, which is available where you get her podcasts. Adele won a Grammy in 2011 for her album, 21. It was about a breakup. But when she wasn't working on her music, she was trying to start dating again. Can you imagine? You're internationally famous, and the whole world knows that there was this guy, and you could have had it all with him. But now you're filling out a survey on eHarmony. Hello, can you hear me? I like to imagine Adele sitting there, obsessing over her profile, Adele rating how witty or sensitive she is, and absolutely no one messaging her beautiful face, because Adele couldn't upload a photo. That's not what famous people do. Celebrities, dating's hard for them, too. That is, until a new dating app came to town. Well, enter the dating app, Raya. Raya is the new hot thing. (laughs) Raya is an ultra-exclusive dating app that's specifically tailored to pre-approved people in the creative industries. This episode of Y.O.Y. is about a dating app so exclusive that no one has any idea how to pronounce it. Some call it Raya. More people we found call it Raya. We emailed the app and they declined to be interviewed. We replied asking for their help pronouncing it. Nothing. So we'll just stick with the more common Raya for the duration of this episode. Of course, who needs to know how to say the name of the app? Most people talk about it without talking about it. That's actually how Amy Schumer met her boyfriend, Ben. Here's how she told it to CBS This Morning. I was on a dating app for 48 hours, I should okay. say that. And uh, As Amy Schumer? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And it's um, it was one for, like, creative types, and you can't screenshot it because... We- and that's how we know she's talking about Raya. All of their marketing says it's a private network for people in creative industries. And it's the one app that boots you off for taking a screenshot. Amy went on to say that we shouldn't have stigma about online dating. Well, you'd recommend it, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, it worked for me. Yeah. I've, the first person I talked to on the, the app was Ben. The very first person I talked to. But if you're Amy Schumer, that's not dumb luck. That's access. If she'd sign up for Tinder, her chance of finding a boyfriend in the first 48 hours goes way down. But the chances of finding a guy holding a bloody knife in his profile picture or asking you for your bra size, that's way better. And that's why in this episode, we're going to sneak behind the velvet rope and talk to two anonymous folks who are on the app right now. We'll hear what it's like to be in the same dating pool as Raven Simone and Sharon Stone, what it's like to swipe on Moby or Fred Durst. Plus, one of our guests will offer to be a reference 
and help one lucky YOY listener get a shot at a celebrity boyfriend. Will we sneak one of our own onto the Illuminati Tinder? We'll find out. First, let's talk about the makeup of the app. Comedian Hannibal Burris was recently on one of my favorite podcasts, Another Round, and they started asking him if he's heard of Amy's app. Amy Schumer is on, like, rich people Tinder? Oh, yeah? I don't know if that's a real thing that celebrities know about that we just don't, our, us plebs don't have access to. <laughs> Do you know what it's called? Uh, it's called on. Raya. It's called what? Raya. Yeah. R-A-Y-A. Yeah. Uh, are you on it? Yeah. Oh. Oh, my God. Can we see it? Raya has this feature where each profile plays a song selected by the user. Tinder has something kind of like this. They have this Spotify integration that will let you display your anthem. But with Raya, the song is central to the experience. It starts playing automatically while your profile pictures scroll by. It's kind of like when you used to come home from family vacation in the mid-2000s, and then you'd make a slideshow and iPhoto. So when Hannibal handed his phone to Heaven and Tracy, that's how they picked. Go to what's a song. <laughs> uh, that one Diddy album. Yeah. Yes. She, she has a May song. Yes. She's 29. Word. Oh, that's a yes. The, the song saved her for me. Okay. Now, let's talk about the application process. Raya is sometimes called the Soho House of Dating Apps. You know, the Soho House, this international private members club for, quote, people in the creative industries. I've been to one before for a speaking event, and it's cool. There's a movie theater and the rooftop pool and lounges that look like they're from another era. But anyone can join if you're willing to pay about $1,500 for your first year. With Raya, you actually have to make it past this application process. And then it's just the cost of Netflix, $7.99 a month. The whole application process really makes you want to see if you're capable you know will i pass the test like cool yeah yeah like am i cool enough i think i'm cool but who knows do i know cool enough people but i really just think it's like if you're an attractive female you're on that's my first anonymous source you should know that she's very successful at her creative thing but she's not necessarily a big name at it if i said her name here you wouldn't know it at the same time her instagram followers top twenty thousand. So once she got in, just like any dating app, there was a flood of really terrible compliments. Oh, God, what do they say? Like, where are you from? (laughs) Like, you look exotic. Ugh, that's the worst when men say that I'm exotic looking. And then for listeners Um, who don't, who won't know anything about you, why is that? I'm from Yemen and Egypt. Like, I'm a brown girl and I'm definitely a minority on there. Like, 100% I'm a minority on that app. What's that like to be one of the only brown girls? I think it's fucking awesome because I get so many men, you know? Like, I'm sure they're so excited to see a girl that does not look like the typical Raya girl, which is, like, a lot of makeup, very, like, close selfie, blonde highlighted hair, and, like, big eyes and tits and all of the things, you know? Which is fine, but it's definitely, I'm definitely a little bit different looking than the rest. What was it like to get the acceptance? Well, okay, so I live in a house full of six girls, and they've all been applying for it. And I'm the only one that got accepted. So, like, everyone basically in the house 
was looking at it and we were all freaking out and it was just funny. It was really funny because you see all these celebrities and of course you want to just immediately screenshot everything because you're like, haha. But then you realize, oh, these celebrities are paid to be on there as the first thing so that people can establish those rules of no screenshots. And this seems to be a true thing about the app. I keep reading that the first people you'll see will be the most recognizable celebrities, like Joe Jonas or Elijah Wood. It's bait, because if you take a screenshot, the app will send you an instant reminder that it knows what you did and you'll be booted if you keep that up. I'm sure Raya designed it that way. And I don't think the celebrities mind either. Have you ever looked at one of those celebrities they're just like us spreads in a magazine? That used to be something celebrities hated, but now it's an important driver of their online brands. Celebrities posting cute pics of their kids. Celebrities shopping for organic zucchini. Celebrities posting goofy selfies. They're just like us. So this is a total conjecture here, but... Couldn't some Raya profiles just be another way that they're trying to shape their personal brands into something relatable? Did Joe Jonas make his profile or did his agent? Raya has roots in PR. The founder is a guy named Mike McGinnis who owns this Los Angeles company focused on Hollywood elites. So to me, the real question is, is anyone actually hooking up on Raya? Is it more about being relatable than being dateable? To hear the rest of the episode, subscribe to YOY. Andrea made 500 episodes of The Gist for you, so you kind of owe her. Just visit iTunes.com slash YOY or search for YOY in your favorite podcast app. 